This podcast is brought to you by Rico, a market intelligence company helping clients achieve resilient, competitive advantage in the long term. For every business that does go through the certification process and becomes a certified B Corporation, what you have to do is you have to amend these articles to make it absolutely explicit and super clear that the role of the director is to equally consider shareholders and stakeholders in the decisions that are made. Welcome to the Future and Sound podcast. I'm your host, Jen Wilson. This is a podcast where we talk about prioritizing people, planet, and profit in business strategy and decision making. We'll have different names for this, ESG strategy, sustainability strategy, maybe integrated strategy. Whatever glossy terms you choose, if you're in the thick of this stuff, you know there's no silver bullet. Like in any strategy, you can't prioritize everything, so there are trade-offs and different views to consider. In this podcast, we learn from world-leading experts who share bits of wisdom that can help us see the future we want and our role in it. This isn't a normal business podcast. We're not interested in the latest trend, jargon, or branding technique. Instead, we go beyond the headlines and look to clarify our long-term view on resilient economies, competitive business strategies, and decision-making best practice. This is episode five, and not or. Quick story. I remember taking a director's education program with the Institute of Corporate Directors in Canada. It was a group brimming with experience, Many were on boards of publicly traded companies, CEOs of Canada's fastest growing businesses, CFOs of large Canadian pension funds, leaders in public health, the military, the list goes on and on. Needless to say, it was certainly a humbling experience learning from my classmates. One of the most memorable lessons from the program came from a debate about stakeholder capitalism. Essentially, the class was split. Half leaned toward a duty to shareholders, the other half saw the need for a broader duty to stakeholders. After speaking to people at break, it was clear that they worried about demoting shareholder rights. And they've got a point. If we have to choose between shareholders, employees, being an environmental steward, etc., that's a cause for concern. The real question became quite clear to me that day. Is this a false choice in the long term? Do we really need to choose? For this episode, I'm discussing this very question with Charmian Love. Charmian is a co-founder and chair of B-Lab UK, where she supports the growth of B corporations. B corps are businesses that meet the highest standard of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. Our conversation was recorded in late 2020. And oh, by the way, don't be fooled by Charmian's self-deprecating charm. Publicly traded companies are becoming B Corps, and Charmian is helping to lead this movement. I think what she's doing is pretty impressive. (laughs) 
Charmian Love, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the Future and Sound podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very happy to hear another Canadian accent here in London. Absolutely. We're going to have to throw in a bit of Canadiana throughout this interview. So we'll count points every time you know we mention maple syrup or something along those lines. New dude about it, my friend. New dude about it. Excellent. I love it. I love it. I, I wanted to start with uh, a question about your background, Charmian. So I saw that uh, you actually studied art history, uh, if I'm if I'm not wrong, and uh, you then moved in to become an expert in sustainable business. And I'm just wondering how you made that transition. Oh, what a great starting question. Um, thanks, Jen. Um, well, first off, I'm just going to say I am not an expert at anything. I think um, there is so much changing and so much happening right now in sustainability and impact um, that I, I think um, being being deemed as an expert is actually quite a scary thing um, because I'm learning and changing and every day something new is emerging. So I, I want to sort of put that out there right now that if um, listeners are expecting to hear from an expert, I'm sort of more of someone who's going with the flow and sort of trying to surf the waves, if that makes so, sense. Charmaine, you just got a point. That's a, a dose of Canadian uh, humility. I think. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Oh, so we can do like a little, maybe yeah. it's not like a ding ding, but maybe it's like no. we have to shout poutine every time, <laughs> like, like a Canadian, a Canadian reference. Um, cool. Well, yeah, but, but to go to your original question about art history. Um, yeah. So I studied art history um, when I was at Queens University in Canada. And, um, and I think actually my journey in art actually was, it, it has had a really profound impact on my choices and the decisions I've made to find myself where I am today. Um, and actually it goes earlier than, than Queens. It was actually when I was in high school and um, I struggled in high school um, with some of the courses and some of the, the things. And, and I think just my brain is wired a little bit differently than other people. So some of the courses were things that um, were learning that, that I just had to find different ways to learn. I'll put it that way. Um, and I remember one of my high school teachers had introduced this um, initiative that had just started in Toronto, which was trying to get teenagers to be docents. Um, and for those on the line who are not necessarily okay with um, art language and art history language, a docent is someone who is usually in art galleries and they're trained to um, help people that are visiting art galleries understand art. And this program that was happening at the Art Gallery of Ontario was again, trying to tra train teenagers to understand contemporary art and then to be able to talk to other teenagers about it. So it was really quite cool. Um, and I remember going to the Art Gallery of Ontario first day um, and not really knowing what to expect and, you know, having liked art always, but, you know, not really being truly, you know, passionate about it. And I just really remember um, this one moment. It's like a really quite a crossroads moment in my life where like things changed like the the center my center of gravity changed because as we were getting ready to learn how to talk to people about art and in particular contemporary art um one of the trainers said you know here is a, a Rauschenberg painting I remember the painting actually it's the Rauschenberg painting what do you think about it and so we're all kind of looking at each other we're like what like what, what are we supposed to say with this thing that's in front of us um and then they said you know here's the thing there are no wrong answers no wrong answers. Just like really think about what you what you feel, what you see, what you imagine, what you what it makes you think. And and it was just like a flick for me. And having been told so much that what I and how I was thinking about things was wrong, I was doing it the wrong way. Um, I wasn't getting the right answer. To have someone say that actually art, you know, it, your what you feel and what you think 
is right because that is what you're thinking and that's what you're feeling. And, and, and it just opens something up in me. So I, I, that, and I, I wanted to share that as an insight because that is um, a level of confidence that I have now brought to this world in which we're living in, because actually this world is kind of like a Jackson Pollock painting to bring in another art reference. You know, it's like this incredible splatter painting of like lines and chaos and messiness. And, and, and actually you can love or hate Jackson Pollock, but actually it makes you, makes you feel something. And I think what we need to all have is this critical ability to kind of look at what's happening and, and understand like what's going on and like, how do we feel about it? And to know that like, we should be really trying to tune in um, to, to how we're perceiving things around us. Um, so, so that's a bit of my art history story, which starts before university. And then I did, I did do a degree in art history and actually um, classics. So I, I, uh, I actually had spent some time on an archeological dig in Greece. And the other, the other interesting learning for me from that, that is kind of paired with that sort of contemporary art and, um, interest in sort of how we unlock sort of our ability to see things differently um, is this ability to really think about the past. And I think that's something that um, in studying classics and going and actually like being in the dirt in Greece and like, you know, with a little toothbrush, because it's not like being in Indiana Jones, let's just be clear, right? Like it's a little toothbrush <laughs> and like brushing things off, but it was like touching things from the past and actually feeling tangibly like what and how people lived. And I, I think that's also made me really feel quite connected to the different horizons that we, we live in, right? Like we are, we are connected to the past because that's where we've come from. We are living in the present where there's a lot of change and like the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed, which I'll do like a little poutine ding, 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 because that's a quote from Canadian science fiction writer, William William um, Gibson. You're winning. Yeah, the future is already here. It's not evenly distributed. So like we are living across these time horizons and they actually like are all connected because we can see things from the past today. We're living it in the moment right now. And every decision we make today is, is going to affect that future that our, our future generations are going to live in. A longer um, question answer than what you were looking for, but any chance I have to talk about art and archaeology um, is, is always something I like to lean into. So thank you for the opportunity to riff on that a bit. Well, let's, I mean, we can go back into art history anytime throughout this interview, but one of the things that really struck me in your answer is that it's about broadening our viewpoints. It's very easy to fall into specific narratives or stories that we've heard from others, but actually, perhaps if we broaden our point of view, as you were told to do when you were standing in front of a painting in high school, and really think independently about what do we want uh, what do we feel, etc. That can be focused on very big questions related to business, markets, capitalism, etc. And, and that segues quite nicely, I think, into my next question, uh, which is: I'm really interested. Um, you know, you've acted as chair for the UK B Lab and several other, even on boards of several organizations that focus on the role of business and sustainability. And I'm really interested in the shift that we're seeing on boards at the moment. So lots of conversations around a shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, Charmian, what does that look like on a board? How is, how is purpose feeding into board conversations in your experience? Hmm, okay. Well, and, and I, I do also want to be really clear. So I, I do have a role on the board of B-Lab UK, um, where I do hold the role of chair. Um, I 
which is super fun. Um, and, and we've got a really extraordinary board um, that, that meet regularly. And we, we just have a really good time talking about some of these questions and these issues and figuring out how we best support um, the B-Lab UK team, because that's ultimately what our purposes is to do what we can to support um, our executive director and, and the rest of the team. Um, the, other, the other organizations I've been involved with often are more in an advisory board capacity or an advisory council. So I, I can speak to that as well. But I do think there's something when you have, um, you know, sort of a, a, a trusteeship, like where there is sort of a, a formal role. Um, and, and with B-Lab UK, I mean, I guess what I would say is um, I'd, I'd love to actually re respond to that question, not necessarily with like our B-Lab UK board, because I think our board is, is developed and shaped by a, a, a shared commitment to grow and strengthen um, the movement of B Corps here in the UK. Um, but actually, I think I'd like to answer that in the terms of the B Corps themselves and actually what it means to be a B Corp when it comes to your board. Um, and, and again, I'm going to sort of couch all of this to say that I am not a lawyer. Um, so I, I, I want to be clear that my, my reflections here are not based on a technical um, legal perspective. Um, but it is about um, how B Corps um, have emerged in the UK, but actually how they've emerged globally and how one of the fundamental things that B Corps do is actually change the articles, like the very constitution of the business. Um, and that actually does have an impact on the, the duties of directors um, of, of those businesses. Um, but Jennifer, maybe I should, should pause there. Would it make sense for me to speak a little bit about what a B Corp is before kind of launching into that? Or is that something your, reader, your, your listeners will, will already be um, familiar with? Please do dive in. I think this is fascinating. And it seems to be a core tenant of what differentiates a B Corp. Okay, well, let me do just a quick overview of what a B Corp is. And then I think we'll be able to then go into a conversation about the board of B Corps and sort of some of the things that are taken into account. So um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, B Corps are for profit businesses that have met the highest level of performance. Um, and they've been certified by B Lab, the organization, um, because they have extremely high um, performance in terms of how they operate. So those are sort of things like, you know, what their governance features are, how they're engaging with their workers, how they um, support their local supply chains in their local community, and, and how they take into account the environment in, in how their business operates. So those are very much like the hows and the operational side of it. Um, but B Corps also are assessed on the B Impact Assessment um, on, on their business model. So it's like, what are you in the business of doing? Like, what are the positive externalities or what is the impact business model of your for-profit business. So how do you generate your revenues and, and where and how do those revenues get used? So um, if a business meets um, a, a minimum score on the B impact assessment, which again is measuring the how and, and the what, um, then the, the second step would be that all B Corps have to go through this process where they, they actually change their constitution. Now, in some regions in the world, there is a, a legal structure called a benefit corporation. And that is one um, where if you have that in your region, you will be expected to become a benefit corporation. Um, and if you don't, um, in what you do is you have to you update your articles. And the thing that's super interesting and connects to this conversation about um, boards is what, what that involves, right? And so what it involves is for every business that does go through the certification process and becomes a certified B Corporation, what you have to do is you have to amend these articles to make it absolutely explicit and super clear that the role of the director is to equally consider shareholders and stakeholders in the decisions that are made. Um, and, and that really is a, a quite fundamental piece of what it means to be a B Corp because it means it's sort of like hardwired into the DNA. It's like a legal 
element of how your how your business is, is incorporated. And so what we see is that B Corps that go through this process, and again, whether it's, you know, because they, they trans they become a benefit corporation in the states in the US that have it and a couple of the countries, including Italy, that have that um, that sort of legislative structure, or they they change the articles. One is to go through that process is an, an important conversation for the board to be having um, because to to make that amendment, um, at least here in the UK, you know, often it requires a supermajority so the, of, the, of shareholders to agree to it. And so it has to be something that's part of a discussion. Um, and also, I think it, it does create a framework for board members to quite actively discuss, not just the return that they would be delivering to a shareholder, but actually to 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 be required to consider um, the stakeholders and the impacts of decisions on on a wider group of stakeholders. So, um, Jen, I hope that sort of answers the question about you know the the board and and I guess what we are seeing in the B Corp community are 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 businesses that are well they they've certified as B Corps because of this assessment and they've made this legal change and I think that that means that these businesses are having really interesting conversations at a board level around decisions that need to be made and recognizing that it is the director's duty to equally consider, again, shareholders and stakeholders in that process. I think it's fascinating. It's a really helpful explanation. One of the things that, uh, so again, I should also say, uh, I'm not a lawyer. And so anything that I say about uh, articles of association or incorporation, uh, if you have questions uh, regarding the legalities, please do check with your your legal team. Um, But one of the things that was really interesting looking through um, the recommended language for an objectives clause in the UK, at least, which essentially I think they were popular until, um, uh, uh, I guess, a decade or so ago in the UK, and uh, then the objectives became so wide that uh, many stopped using object- an objectives clause. But the the language is actually quite helpful in this case for a B Corp, where I think if I take a step back, when I engage with people who are on boards and they hear the conversation about stakeholder versus shareholder, it seems to be interpreted as an either or. But the language that is uh, included uh, or recommended uh, by the B Corp community actually, at the end of it, it essentially says in no ways is to be interpreted as undermining the rights of shareholders. And that's really important because it's actually very much framed as, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's very much framed as, it's not an either or. We're talking about how do we incorporate stakeholder needs so that we actually increase value in the long term for our shareholders. And that's a really important distinction. And and I wonder if that's something that, you know, when you talk to uh, leaders of different B Corps, whether this is something that really comes alive in their day-to-day governance work. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you've picked up on two two really important things in your reflections there. Um, this idea of both and, um, and that's actually one of my frame, favorite frameworks, because actually I do think one of the things we as humans are really waking up to is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We have the capacity to do quite sophisticated things as humans. Um, we can move beyond like an either or um, way of looking at the world um, and, and really like embrace this both and. And I should give credit where credit's due. Um, actually, there's a really great, for any of your listeners that are interested, there's a great TED talk that was done by one of the B Lab 
co-founders, uh, Jay Cohen Gilbert. I think it was back from 2010, like TEDx Philly. And, and he talked about this, exactly this, this, shareholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism. And, and I remember that was his reference point is like walk and chew gum at the same time, both and like we, we can do this. And, and as like a little bit like of a postscript, um, as soon as you start thinking about both and in this way, you can see how in the whole world there's like we, we have been pulled into an either or frame and actually so much more richness comes from when we can approach things as both and um, rather than either or so like it's not just profit or purpose but profit and purpose like it's extraordinary how we can be both hopeful and recognize the urgency of what's happening around us right like there, there it, we have to go beyond binary in so many different um, ways. But I digress because that's going off a, a little bit off topic. Um, but I would, I would sort of just say you're right. Like, this is exactly um, the purpose is to say that it is not about one or the other. It is about both shareholders and stakeholders together. And, and again, this language of being equally considered, right? You also said long term. And I think that's another really important dynamic to this, which is really recognizing like time horizons. Um, and, and, you know, I think we all know the sort of sense of where the different, like there is a sort of sense of um, market like myopia, right? Where everyone's sort of focused on short term. And I think this is another really important thing that we need to move into is really thinking much longer term in terms of the decisions we're making and what those impacts are going to be. Um, and I think that's an area where there's some incredible organizations doing a, a lot of work. Um, and I, I feel like that's an important element of consideration when we're, we're talking about, again, how boards frame the decisions they're making. And again, what time horizons they're looking to in, when making those decisions. I'm interested, Charmian, when we think about specific examples of where boards have maybe taken a more stakeholder view, um, and it's resulted in a, a great shareholder outcome, is there, are there any specific examples that really come to the fore for you that put some of the concepts we're discussing into practice? Yeah, I mean, I think you could talk to many of our B Corps and they would all have interesting stories to tell. Um, I mean, one of them is an interesting uh, example. I mean, it, it has to do with um, a, an organization that's certified as a B Corporation. Um, and I think what we can all admit is that there is a very significant series of emergencies we're all facing in the world right now. You know, there's the pandemic, there's the growing levels of, you know, social, uh, social inequalities and the racial injustices we're seeing. And there's the climate emergency happening. Like we got all these emergencies and, and like business has to like step into this way. Like there, you know, we have to find ways to make sure businesses, you know, are, are part of these conversations about how to address these emergencies. And so there is um, one organization that actually declared a climate emergency, and this is a business declaring a climate emergency. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which that became a process that they could go through was because they were a B Corp. And so like that, it was something that was kind of connected to what they had already signed up to as being a B Corp is to acknowledge and recognize um, um, that when there's challenges, there's a role for the business to, to be there to address them. So I think that's one example. You know, another example is um, uh, one of our B Corps. And I think there was a decision that was being brought to the board about, you know, uh, providing a dividend, um, but actually recognizing the purpose of the, or the business and 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 because it was a b corp um instead what they used some of that excess cash to do was to um, actually make sure they were raising the wages of their employees and so i think again that's a, an interesting way to think about what and how a business considers decisions and when you're a b corp 
you know, you, you raise the, the wages of your employees and, and you think about what are the longer term impacts that that's going to have for the overall profitability and growth of the business um, when you get your employees being super well engaged, feeling like they're connected and they're being rewarded. Um, and so it might not be the shorter term dividend, you know, top up, but actually the bigger um, the bigger view of what the business wants to be known for and what it wants to do um, is is what happens. And so, again, that's a kind of decision that the B Corp framework, I think, enables um, a board to make those decisions, again, to, to be more long-term focused and to be more considerate of those wider stakeholders. Mm, I remember I was um, uh, on the board, uh, well, actually secretary to the board in, um, uh, in a company uh, called AIL Group. And uh, they are an infrastructure company, and uh, we had one of our, our board members who was taking a look at the KPIs I was presenting uh, for our strategic update, <clears throat> and he he sat uh, back in his chair and he sort of put his uh, glasses down his nose, which was always an indication that he was going to uh, ask a hardball question, so I was getting ready. And instead, actually, what he said was, you know, Jen, one of the most important metrics on your slide here is employee turnover. And that is an indication of our future profitability. Uh, and it's very, of course, there are always difficult trade-offs to make when we're running companies. And it's not to say that a wage increase is always the answer, but it's thinking about our, hu our human capital, our employees, and how to be competitive in the long term. And they're certainly interlinked. Uh, and so those examples are really helpful. And also, I would say that uh, uh, when I was on um, a course related, actually, it's in Toronto, it's called the um, ICD uh, uh uh, director's education program. I don't yeah. know if you. I do know actually. Um, I know. I know some people that have done the course. I think my yeah. dad. My dad did the course actually. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I think I know some people that are that teach on that course. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, and and it ties to this conversation is some of the the topics that come up because this is another reason why you should uh, check with your your lawyer when you're looking into B Corp ideas. Because actually, it's the framing is very different in different countries. For example, our fiduciary duty to um, is to the corporation in Canada versus to the shareholder in the U.S. And it, it, so there are very different framings. But the reason I bring this course up is because when we talked about uh, the idea of uh, what does it mean to serve the corporation versus the shareholder, I, imagine a group of 60 very experienced board members. We really were divided. And when we we're talking about what's the right answer here or how do we approach this? And usually I was very interested because to me, it seems quite clear that, you know, we need to be thinking about environmental social governance factors altogether um, in order to optimize for the shareholder. Usually it was this misunderstanding that it's an either or. So your explanation is, is actually very helpful. Can I do another ding, ding, ding um, moment for Canada? Yeah, because you just you got a you got a you got a poutine moment there, um, but okay. I'm gonna do another one. Just, okay. just and I don't want to go back, you know, unhelpfully. But I <laughs> I cannot I cannot overestimate like this importance of this both and framing, and actually one of those like mic drop. Oh, actually, I'm gonna say puck drop. There you go, okay. another one. Puck drop <laughs> moments for me was um, uh, a couple of years ago. Justin Trudeau was uh, opening some quantum computing center in Waterloo. Um, and I'm not sure if you saw the video. It kind of went viral, I feel like, but maybe it just went viral through like Canadian expat channels. Um, but it, it was him doing like a one minute on uh, some journalist asked him, hey, Justin, can you like 
describe what quantum computing really is because you're like in the backdrop of like this quantum computing center and Justin Trudeau apparently just I don't know if it was staged but like he had a perfect response and his response was um, and it's worth watching this one minute video um, so the reason why I'm so excited about quantum is because um, it is uh, you know it's it, it, it's an, uh, beyond binary so it's not about ones or zeros or ons and offs it's quantum is about where you have the possibility for particles and waves to coexist and it's like through that 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 position that actually could create the, the greater levels of sophisticated in processing power. And, and it just, it like, you know, I'm doing a terrible Justin Trudeau, like, by the way, but, and totally paraphrasing, but that was what I took away from it. And I remember watching this and being like, wow, he, you know, that was really polished. And I think, I think I kind of understand quantum in a way that I'd never <laughs> understood before. Thanks, Justin. He was a teacher, I guess. I yeah, mean, yeah, there you go. He, was, he had a chalkboard <laughs> behind him. But yeah. what was so like interesting for me is like he's talking about quantum and all this like hope we have for quantum computing. And the whole premise of that is based on this potential for the coexistence of particles and waves. And it's like, oh my God, that is our mindset. We need to be like quantum in our mindsets. It's not just computing. It's like us, like walk and chew gum at the same time, you know, be hopeful as well as like recognize the urgency, like probably have a business problem and purpose, shareholders and stakeholders. So like, it's just, yeah, it, to me, like this framing of both and is just such an important part of how we have to, I think, move forward with, with all of this. And as you say, like how this shows up on the board is really important. A visual for me that is stuck in in my brain when I think about stakeholders, shareholders, etc. I remember seeing a photo um, of a, a shareholder uh, meeting for Facebook. It was a huge auditorium filled with thousands of people, and was just thinking, you know, with my board or strategy kind of hat on. Uh, the trade-offs, the, the sort of frameworks that would be helpful to think about what does the shareholder, quote-unquote, want? And what we're talking about here is broadening that even further to what does the stakeholder want? And the reality is, even within a shareholder group, there's going to be such diversity of ideas. There's going to be such diversity of wants. Sometimes they'll conflict, sometimes they'll align. Um, and I'm just wondering... Charmian, as we look at even, you know, shareholders and broadening that out to stakeholders, what are some of the approaches that leaders in stakeholder strategy apply when they try to get their heads around stakeholder points of view and how to prioritize and incorporate some of those points of view into strategy? Mm, that's a really, really good question. Um, my, my mind immediately goes into strategy mode and and i think um it to to take into account stakeholders requires just lots of communication with them um and i'm not sure if i'm going to have anything more um you know special to say other than i mean i think it's about identifying who your stakeholders are um and and being really broad about that right um so recognizing that employees your community that you're operating in and you know those those organizations that are part of your supply chain and your customers, like they're all really important stakeholders to be talking to, and and actually, I take that back. I'm not talking to to be listening to. <laughs> um, so I think it's about really mapping and understanding those stakeholders, and almost like figuring out the different altitudes and layers, um, because our our businesses have impact, both positive and negative on a wide range of, 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 of stakeholder groups and just sort of being able to see and visualize 
those groups are, and then being able to engage and listen and talk to them. I think that's how you take those insights into account in order to plan your strategy. And then, of course, your strategy is the thing that your executive team and obviously your your board need to be really considering. Um, and I think that sort of maybe a little bit more of a sequential approach to it when I when it really does need to be quite circular and it needs to be constant feedback loops with those stakeholder communities. Um, but I think that I think it's yeah I, I make, identifying them and making sure that you're identifying a wide network like not just those that are primary or secondary stakeholders but tertiary and, and going out as wide as you can to understand the impacts of your business and then figuring out how you can listen to them and engage with them um, in in shaping and, and developing your strategy or, or changing your strategy as the case may be. It's it's a fascinating answer. A previous guest on the Future in Sound, Dr. Sarah Kaplan was also talking about, and it's not un- unrelated to your point about uh, bringing a younger cohort into the boardroom uh, around strategic questions. Uh, if we get to one of those uncomfortable uh, points of tension between stakeholder needs, bringing stakeholders in to brainstorm with them. Mm which is super, it, it just, it's, it's a very interesting concept and not the first thing we think of in business. Well, and it's interesting because I also think in addition to young people, um, I, I personally think that there's a lot of in, things that are happening in, in social movements right now. Um, and uh, I, I don't really have a way of calibrating this to how things have happened in the past because I didn't really exist in the past in the way that I'd be able to really be able to say, does this feel the same or different than what's come before? But I certainly feel like there are people that are feeling strongly about things and wanting to get on the streets to make their feelings known. And I, I think, you know, the, the pandemic has, has, I think, had a some effect on that because I think people are obviously hesitant to gather in masses for, for safety and, and for, you know, the right reasons. Um, but I do think before the pandemic hit, I certainly was fascinated by the activist movements that were really like on the streets and people were engaging with this. And it, it, it is interesting then to think about as a business, how do you take that into account? Um, you know, I like I think there's a, a, an example of a business that I know that actually found a way to bring some of those act- like an activist into their board meeting because actually mm-hmm. to listen to that voice, I think, is important, especially if those voices and the way movements are being shaped and formed and moving forward are, are going to be like a, a shaping dynamic for how businesses thinks about businesses think about how they operate. And I do know that some, many of these movements are still operating and they're still, you know, keeping, keeping their activist spirit alive um, despite needing to sort of, I think, refine some of the tactics based on the um, conditions we live in today. But I do think that that's an interesting other way to bring in, stakeholder voices. And to be clear, it's not going to be comfortable necessarily. Mm. But I also think that some of the best board discussions are ones where there's like a healthy tension and an openness to talk about things that are uncomfortable. Um, and, and in generally in life, I feel like um, it's when you're getting into uncomfortable conversations that you're probably like there's, there's learning that's happening. And it's almost like when things feel hard, it probably means you're going a little bit further than than maybe you would be if every felt everything felt super easy so like i think creating the conditions where you can have some of these quite courageous conversations with people that have different viewpoints and like really listening and engaging and understanding um and maybe not even different viewpoints maybe it's just different approaches um i think is is something that i think is going to be increasingly important as our world becomes more and more complex and 
um, I want to say messy, but uh, possibly messy. Mm, it's I, I, I would love to talk a bit about the future and, and stakeholder trends. Um, but, you know, I think that one of the things that you've touched on that is very interesting is as we think about um, bringing stakeholders around the table and having tension in the room, it's not that far away from what we've been working on, I think, in strategic planning and decision making from a psychological standpoint for some time, and that is avoiding groupthink. And this idea that diversity of thought leads to improved decision making, um, it just it's it's not too many steps away from that kind of research uh, to then say, okay, well, we're also going to take people from completely different fields or with different vantage points and bring them into these conversations so we can weave them into our long-term strategy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's getting at the need for system, like the system systems change um, conversations. Mm-hmm. And actually this year, um, I had the great pleasure of co-teaching uh, an elective for an ex- a group of executive MBAs up at uh, the side business school at Oxford. And the course was called Systempreneurship. <laughs> and it's almost like, how do we... How do we not, like, you know, there's entrepreneurs that build businesses and there's intrapreneurs that can create new ideas within businesses, but actually systempreneurs are about trying to figure out how to change a system. And I think to do that, you really do need to have a view of all the different stakeholders out there that are, and, and have a way of mapping them, but also to understand how you navigate conversations and understand the flows of influence and power and all those things, and, and then figure out how to again, create the spaces where, where that change can come. But to your point about also different perspectives as part of that process. I mean, I'm going to go back again, if I may, to the art and Jackson Pollock, because actually in the teaching I do, um, I often show a Jackson Pollock painting because it's actually an artist that's had a really profound impact on my life. It was Rauschenberg that sort of, I had my puck drop moment, but like I've, I've always been fascinated by Jackson Pollock paintings um, because and, and for those of your your listeners who, who may not be familiar with Jackson Pollock he was sort of the artist that worked in New York um, in the 40s and 50s and he created these massive massive canvases um, where he just splattered paint so he's got a very sort of quite well-known style because it's just like giant canvases of like splatter painting um, and the reason why I bring it up is because I do actually think our system looks like a Jackson Pollock painting, like it's messy and chaotic and there's all sorts of lines going in all sorts of different directions. And it's, um, you know, it sort of come, sometimes can be overwhelming. But if you go back to like, what do you see? Like, what do you see and what do you feel? So that's a question I ask students when I show them a Jackson Pollock painting. And what has been so fascinating is how different people see different things and they feel differently. And you can love or hate it. Like, let's be honest, like some people just can't stand it. And that's cool. Um, and, and then people can talk about what they see and they can say, oh, I see, I see a web. I see a city landscape. Um, I sometimes see the London underground, you know, in terms of all those lines going off in all sorts of different directions. But I had this, again, a, a really powerful moment with um, a, a social worker from Hong Kong. So a frontline social worker. And uh, what he said when he looked at the Jackson Pollock painting was he said, it looks like I am lying underneath a tree, looking up through the branches and seeing the light shine through. And so for one painting to inspire that many different perspectives that are different, um, I think to me is, again, just the reason why both art is, I think, an important thing in culture we should be thinking and channeling into board meetings because it can help us recognize different perspectives and views and really get the sense that it's all equal. Like we all have our views and like they're not wrong because that's kind of where we're coming from. But it also can help us see that just different people can see different things 
and that we should value the perspectives because actually what it does is it, it helps us see that Jackson Pollock painting in different ways. And, and that, that helps us all sort of understand the complexity of the system. And there's a certain dose of empathy to what you're saying, which is much needed in our polarized world, I think. One of the things that I have been thinking a lot about and would love to get your point of view on uh, Charmian is obviously we're seeing an increased focus from the investor community into ESG, environment, uh, environmental, social, and governance factors that not only are we seeing that these factors uh, are helpful to think about for uh, values uh, reasons, but also that they create financial value um, to focus on. And one of the things that uh, a lot of investors are are saying is that it's really hard to determine what good looks like. And we have all of these different rating agencies and they have ideas of rankings, etc. cetera, uh, but then they don't necessarily correlate. And it's quite difficult if you start from the point of we want to do something we want to uh, walk the walk on ESG not just have a, a flashy fund that says ESG on it as an investor how do you spot strategic ESG performance versus greenwashing oh I love this question um, and I'm not an investor I'm not a lawyer I'm not an I'm not an investor um, so I, I will say this from a non-investor's perspective. I am an entrepreneur, though, so I feel like that's kind of maybe where I, the position I can bring into. Um, I, it's really straightforward for me, uh, and it, it, it comes to, from my deep belief in what the B Corp movement stands for. And I'm like, if, you, if, you, if you're serious about this, then change your articles. Um, that, to me, is a very clear line. Like, if this is meaningful and if this is something you're committed to, then make it part of, you know, your director's duties and, and actually put it into your legal articles. That's hard, um, but you know the best things in life aren't, aren't always easy. Um, it's hard, especially for bigger companies, especially those that are publicly traded. But it's not impossible, and um, we've seen ex- examples of that in the market. So we have seen businesses that have, for example, IPO'd. Lemonade was one of the, you know, really successful IPOs of this year, um, and they're a B Corp. So we know capital markets aren't afraid. You know, they are. They're they're recognizing it. So, um, and it, again, B Corp and a benefit corporation. So, I that would be my one line around um, how you would spot greenwashing or not is have they have they made these changes? Now, we are a growing movement. There's 3,500 plus B Corps now around the world, um, but there's a lot more money out there than necessarily can go into 3,500 businesses, as amazing they are. So I do think we have to recognize that there will be also businesses that take the legal form of a B Corp, but without going through the certification. And that's where the benefit corporation becomes really important. Um, but yeah, so that 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 would be the line I would have. Um, I would say for anyone, the readers and listeners that you've got, um, you know, if they want to know more about some real professionals and exp- like people that have a lot of deep experience and um, thoughts on this, I would definitely tune into the work of Bob Eccles uh, and Mary Johnson Louie um, from the Side Business School. Um, they wrote, along with Colin Mayer, who I think was also another member of your uh, esteemed group of, of um, contributors to this this um, podcast, um, and another um, academic from the Side Business School, Judith, they wrote a really interesting piece um, about um, what are sort of the different ways that you can really see that purpose is being, you know, walked the talk in, enacted in, in businesses. And I do think that this idea of um, having a clearly stated purpose, which is something that um, the group at Oxford has spent a lot of time working on. Um, and then and then thinking through, like, what are the sort of ways that you, you, you hardwire that in? Cheyenne Love, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the future and sound. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much. And I feel like one last Canadian like shout out to say, I feel like it's really wonderful um, to, to be in touch and to be talking and to hear a Canadian accent on a, a sort of autumnal Thursday here in London. So thank you so much, Jen. Thank you to Charmian Love for joining us. You can learn more about her work and the B Corp certification process by checking out the links in the episode description. The Future and Sound podcast is written and hosted by Jen Wilson and produced by Chris Attaway. This podcast is brought to you by Rico, a market intelligence company helping clients achieve resilient competitive advantage. Check out our website at www.re.co.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to tell a friend about it. And if you have a moment, rate us in your podcast app. Until next time, thanks for listening. Poutine.